Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And Tyler's going to be doing most of the talking because I have essentially... I have not watched anything in, in the, at all in the last week that I can talk about. Right. You'll I've, be talking plenty about... You've seen plenty, and you'll be talking plenty, but not Yeah, so I've this. got... Uh, uh, well, I've got. Well, next week we'll do um, an LA Film Fest wrap up episode. It'll be pretty short because I was out of town and didn't actually see that right. much at LA Film Fest this year. Um, and then I've, uh, as as usual, I've seen stuff for work that I don't I don't talk about work stuff on mm-hmm. here. Um, and I guess like I've watched, I could talk about the third episode of The Deuce or whatever, but I, I don't know. I don't really have that much to say. I watched a bunch of Seinfeld reruns while I was, uh, yeah. uh, cause they had Hulu in our Airbnb. So that was, uh, fell asleep to Seinfeld every night while we were Nothing wrong with uh, that. in Portland. Oh, saw friend of the show. Uh, Ryan Gallagher oh, hung nice. out with him and his family. I guess he's friend of our. He's not technically a friend of the show because he's never been on the That's right. show, and he never will be, uh, as far as I'm concerned. No, I hope he is someday. But uh, yeah, my wife and I had dinner. We went to Portland. We had dinner with uh, uh, with Ryan from the Criterion cast. Mm-hmm. It was a delight. How uh, was uh, Portland? It was so much fun. Okay, uh, I loved it. Is it weird? Are they keeping it weird successfully? I guess, but I don't really. Uh, did Portland or Austin do that first? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like it happened at the same time. It's yeah. uh, parallel thinking. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I didn't really focus on the weirdness. Um, the things I want. Uh, okay. I'll say this since I have nothing else to talk about weird experience in Portland where, so I have obviously Ryan is a friend in Portland. Mm-hmm. One of my wife's best friends also lives in Portland. And then weirdly, one of her friends and one of my friends were also vacationing in Portland the same weekend. That's weird. And one of them was really like, so I, I have a friend, um, I can't remember if you've met her, uh, she was at my wedding. Anyway, I won't, I won't say her name. She left town. She moved uh, to Baltimore like two years ago. Oh, Mary Beth. Um, it's not Mary Beth. Okay. Uh, I don't think I know any Mary Beth. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I know a Mary Ellen. I know a Mary Grace. Okay. I don't know a Mary Beth. Um, there's probably a good friend of mine named Mary Beth listening to this right now and being very upset. Um, no, uh, so my friend moved to Baltimore two years ago. I haven't seen her since I'm at the Burbank airport waiting to board mm-hmm. and I get a text and it's my friend. It's my friend. And she's like, uh, LOL, I'm in Missouri. Cause she knows that's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I'm just at the Kansas city airport changing planes. And I was like, Oh, where are you headed? <laughs> and she was like, Oh, Portland for a wedding. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I met, uh, all of her Baltimore friends and her boyfriend that I, I like hadn't seen her in two years. And we went out to get drinks that night. Um, really strange. Uh, but other things I did in Portland were, um, I uh, drank a lot of beer because Portland is like a big beer town. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I uh, now you know my wife and I are big fans of the Food Network in general and Chopped in particular. Yeah. And there's a chef who was, I think, one Chopped twice that I'm obsessed with. Her name is Nong, and she made she built an empire just making chicken and rice. Like, she had a food cart where literally the only thing on the menu was chicken and rice. That sounds you, delicious. You I can eat some those. some sauces, you know, that you, you know uh choose but the sauces are on the side so you wouldn't even exactly you could eat it uh just plain uh and now she has like multiple restaurants that just like do this chicken and rice thing and that was like when like natalie asked me like what's on you because we hadn't like the portland trip was kind of a last minute not last minute but kind of like a, on a whim type of thing mm-hmm. 
So we knew we were hanging out with friends. We didn't really put together like a plan like you do when you're on vacation somewhere. So she was like, what do you like want to do while you're in Portland? And like the only, the first and only thing I could think of is I want to go to Nong's restaurant and eat that chicken and rice. And I did. And it was so good. Uh, what kind of sauce did you get with it or, or uh, whatever you want to, I got like three different sauces. So it, because she, Nong is Thai. So it comes with the peanut sauce, okay. which I used a little bit of, and then I used two different hot sauces. Okay. Um, all together uh eventually like at first i was like putting uh because i got it to go and they you literally just get it like they put the rice and the chicken on paper like not in a thing it's like on mm-hmm. thick paper like butcher paper yeah. and they just wrap it up so when we sat it like we went to the park and sat at a park bench and just like unwrapped this paper that had a bunch of so at first i was like putting the sauce in different parts but as it went on and as the bees kept trying to get at this i think bees like peanut sauce because it's oh, sweet yeah you know um uh, I was essentially uh, by the end I was just like shoveling stuff in my mouth to get the bees to leave me alone <laughs> uh, but also because it was so good so um, yeah saw friends drank beer ate nongs in context that sounded perfectly fine but there's something about I'm shoveling it in my mouth to get the bees to leave me alone <laughs> it sounds like a crazy person um, yeah. but yeah okay so yeah that, that sounds, was uh, that sounds have you delicious been to Portland? I have not been to you've Portland. been to Seattle which is Seattle. also the Pacific Northwest yes but this is uh, different place sadly i was uh, very sick when jen and i went to seattle we did not cancel the trip that's the one yes where Wait, I have spo- i told this story on the podcast yes before? you have oh yeah okay. um can i tell it again <laughs> uh, no well, it makes not? me sound dumb no admittedly, it doesn't it, admittedly, no. i was doped up on cold medicine yeah. but still it's a funny story it doesn't make you sound dumb it could happen mm-hmm. to anyone i suppose Tyler planned this trip to Seattle as a surprise yeah. for his wife. It was, uh, uh, she didn't know where they were going. Right. He had like told her like, just, you know, pack this, take these days off work or whatever. Like this is where we're going. One of the few surprises that I yeah. kept up for a, a very long time. A couple months. Until, until the night before yeah. I was over there. And I think it was something about like, I think maybe I was going to be feeding Charlie or something. Uh, there was something yeah. like, and you, cause you were like, uh, well, while we're in Seattle, blah, 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 and you're like, Oh fuck! Yeah, because <laughs> she was sitting right there. You had kept yeah. the secret for I know three months or so because and then I got like, wrapped up in a conversation with you, yeah. and you already knew. But also, as it turns out, she was happy that I spoiled the surprise. Oh yeah, that's my you my know. memory is she like she turned around like from the computer desk with like uh, like a big grin in her face. Yeah. She was very happy about Seattle. But she was also because I had told her to, told her to because it was December I think, and I said oh. pack warm, and she had done that, but then somehow just by oh seattle she has a she had a better idea of how to pack based on sure my sense. specific uh saying of that but yeah and it was so frustrating i was anyway ugh, i done i'm very bad at keeping secrets but also i don't know I, I feel like enough time has passed that this should be a funny story for you it is a funny story but it's just it's <laughs> just another <laughs> i had a therapy session today and so it's just like uh-huh. uh you know talking about my past failures uh, and incompetence is not something I'm in the mood for right now. But I'll tell you what I am in the mood for. Mini flicks. Okay. Me too. Do you know what it is? Yeah. That's a, it's a premier streaming site for award-winning short films. I was going to (laughs) say, I'm sorry. Jinx. Um, so Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, uh, Toronto International Film Festival, and many more, meaning you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms. Now, 
Along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. Right now, you can read their delightful in-depth interview with Australian filmmaker Emily Avila, uh, in which she talks about film school culture, which sounds interesting to me. I'm curious to know if it's the same in Australia as it was here, Um, uh, and tells several behind-the-scenes stories from her short films and offers advice for aspiring short filmmakers. They're they're also kicking off a three-part series on the short films of Barry Jenkins, studying his formalism and shared themes. This week, they discuss uh, his films My Josephine and Little Brown Boy. So, to check out these and other articles, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. All right. Okay, like I said, I don't have anything to talk about. All right, it's movie journal time. Yeah. So, my first movie is Nicole Holof Center's The Land of Steady Habits. Okay. Starring many people, uh, most notably Ben Mendelsohn and Edie Falco, but Bill Camp is in it, and Marvelous as always. Um, I'm a big fan of Nicole Holof Center. Um, Yeah. for many years, uh, Enough Said was my favorite film of 2013. Uh, but then upon rewatching Inside Lewin Davis, that uh, that uh, shoved it out of the way. Um, here's what I'll say is that there are elements to this, to this story that could be seen as very cutesy and quirky and indie light, as we have mm-hmm. talked about. Mm-hmm. But not unlike Enough Said, which I forget has a conceit to the story. Oh, right. Yeah. I forget that. Yeah. But like, it's not a completely straightforward romantic comedy. There's this idea of somebody trying to keep a secret from somebody else. Uh, And in this film, there are a a number of character quirks. Uh, There's a a kid who's this druggy and... uh, a graphic novel writer and illustrator and he really loves his turtle and he wants to I can't believe you say druggy <laughs> sorry you know what here's the thing it works for this kid okay um and it's it's entirely possible that one of the other characters okay. one of the adult characters describes him that way but um and i know him from uh ozark he's in ozark i don't remember the name of the actor though but anyway he does a good job uh but he's and he, he he appears to have things all figured out uh, despite being young. And again, he just has this pet turtle that he loves. So it's just it's stuff like that. A, a lot of other characters have things like that that just seem in the hands of a different director, things that would seem very precious. Wait, is it Thomas Mann? No. Oh, OK. No. Um going to say i know who he is and he does and he does a, a really great job as well but um but yeah nicole hollis center just has a way of taking these i'll use the word quirks and i'll use it with as much disdain as i can uh and turning them into just idiosyncrasies the kind that we all have and i feel like this script and, and she wrote the script as well but um and it's and it's adapted from a a, a book, but, um, I feel like just on paper, this film would have bothered me. Um, but she directs it with a great deal of humor, a great deal of sensitivity. Um, I feel like she and, uh, Tom McCarthy Mm -hmm. are sort of cut from the same cloth as far as telling stories about families and make, uh, makeshift families, um, and doing it with, 
humor, but also a great deal of love for her characters. Uh, it's not a perfect film by any stretch, but the performances you've got, like I said, Ben Mendelsohn, Edie Falco, Charlie um, Tahan or Tahan. That's him. Tahan. Yes. Yes. Okay. I looked up, I know, well, I know him from, uh, love is strange. Okay. In 2014, but also something from when he was a little kid that I didn't realize the same mm-hmm. kid. I don't know if you could picture, picture a kid, watching shrek oh well will smith stands behind him and yes, that's quotes right. every line of dialogue that's right yeah because yeah. i looked him up because of ozark because i remember liking okay. him in ozark but uh yeah so he's been around uh, a while and uh but yeah it's it's a movie i'm glad i watched it i'm not sure if i would say it is essential viewing but it is definitely i think a good example this along with enough said which i do think is infinitely better honestly um I guess she's working her way through the Sopranos. Uh, she had James Gandolfini and uh-huh. enough said, and then yeah. Eddie Falco here. But, um, I, I think it's, it's, uh, Robert Eiler. <laughs> keep an eye out. Yeah. What are you doing? Um, I feel like it's, it's her movies are a lesson in, in sort of undercutting, but in the best possible way, undercutting like the quirk and, and, the quirkiness and preciousness of certain types of stories and finding the human, the real humanity underneath. So it's, it's, it's a good movie. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, next up is a film I have seen before. And so have you, I was showing it to my students Okay, and it is uh, citizen King. Um, oh, yeah, I've seen one. it before. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you and I are going to uh, crack any codes here. Uh-huh. Um, what I will say is as tends to happen when you see a movie, you've seen a number of times. Um, you do notice it's not that you notice different things, but you kind of allow yourself to focus on different things. And I think I, I feel like in general, we don't talk enough, you and me and also people in general, when we talk about great actors of that era, we don't talk enough about Joseph Cotton. Mm. Yeah. I love Joseph. You know, the, uh, the third man, um, uh, oh my gosh, what is the... Magnificent uh, Ambersons? Magnificent Ambersons. What's the Hitchcock film? That he's in? Yeah, it's... Uh, oh my gosh, this... Oh, uh, uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Um, you know, I never saw that. It's very good. And and he just... He's such an effortless actor and has quite a bit of charm to him. And you realize that Kane just has the ability to dominate all of these people around him. Um, and admittedly, you know, when he's talking with boss, Jim Gettys, well, Gettys has the upper hand there, but Kane just does not let himself <clears throat> get spoken to by really anybody, uh, because he just has so much money and power. And the character of Jed Leland just does not give a shit. Now he's, he's friends with him, but he also just the way cotton plays him is that he is, he's always just observing what is going on around him. And I think he sees it with a certain detached amusement, but also I think it breaks his heart to see his friend slowly, but surely turn into somebody that he knows he would never want to be, but there's not much he can really do about it. It's a really marvelous performance. And one that, you know, of the many Oscars that Kane was nominated for, um, it was not up for supporting actor. Uh, and not to think only in terms of Oscars, but I feel like, 
it's one of the great supporting performances and one that really anchors the film because Kane himself, you know, because of the, the structure of the, of the film, we're hearing things from all these other perspectives. And so we can kind of piece together what motivates him and what drives him. But all of these other characters and their interpretation of him and their commentary on him, um, lets us know just as much about them as, as it does about Kane. And Leland is just this magnetic character that, that I just, uh, can't get enough of and and it's a lot of it is due to joseph cotton's performance and it's worth noting that not to speak ill of the rest of the cast but a lot of them were people that wells brought with him from new york Mm. and many of them got their best roles in orson wells films cotton is the only one that kind of broke out of that you know playing you know working with Alfred Hitchcock and and admittedly in something like the third man yes there's a strong Wells influence there and he's in the film but Joseph Cotton was able to break out and be his own lead and really he had enough charisma uh and charm to to carry a film and then also be a villain in a film like uh Shadow of a Doubt so um of course there's a ton to talk about with citizen Kane. And I think my students, uh, my college students, I think they liked it. We didn't have enough time to actually talk about it. So we're going to talk about it next week. Um, I hope they liked it. I really tried to contextualize as much as I could beforehand. Something I was going to say, well, first off I want to talk about Joseph Cotton, another movie that doesn't get talked about that often. I think is duel in the sun, which I never saw actually. It's, Kind of an overstuffed and unwieldy movie, but it's King King Vidor Vidor mm-hmm. Vidor, I believe. I realized that I never I read stuff all the time and I never say it out loud. Yeah. I was like, oh, I have no idea how that, that said. Not um, much reason to say it out loud uh, yeah. in twenty eighteen, but yeah. Um, but it's a uh, but it's a great great uh, Jennifer Jones role. But listen to this cast of Duel in the Sun, which all I had right. forgotten some of these people were even in it. I saw it at the Music Box Theater when they used to do um, they would do like. Uh, uh, Saturday matinees and it'd be like the great escape or duel in the sun. Mm-hmm. It'd be like these big widescreen epics all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's what I saw. Uh, maybe it was a Sunday matinee. Anyway, uh, at the music box, theater in Chicago, Jennifer Jones, Joseph Cotton, Gregory Peck, Lionel Barrymore, Lillian Gish, Walter Houston, and butterfly McQueen. I don't know who that last one is. Um, she's in gone with the wind. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's a hell of a cast. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, and, but what I was going to say, uh, about showing, citizen Kane as like an entry point. It almost seems like you should spend weeks showing them like even like not even bet, like even really good, but conventional movies of the 1930s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. To, to show, because I think, um, I, I, I think to the, you know, cause these, the, the people who are in your class, this is like an mm-hmm. intro level film class. These aren't yeah. necessarily film like not, oh, necessarily mine, no, not at all. At all yeah. Right. And so I think to them or to, to the, to, to a mind that doesn't, hasn't, isn't, hasn't been exposed to lots of old movies Mm -hmm. and just hears these things, Citizen Kane and Casablanca are kind of belong to the same category, which is really, they represent, 
they've always represented to me two kind of poles of yeah uh, or at least of um what you could do in hollywood in the early 40s yeah. you know because casablanca and is, i think there are two poles of accessibility <laughs> um i think a person could watch casablanca not that Casablanca is noir, but that type of movie, that type of stylized performance mm-hmm. uh, and dialogue, I think and we've talked about this on the show before. That if you need an entry point to the to the classic era, film noir and detective and crime fiction is it. Citizen oh, right. Kane okay. is not because that's not that thing. that's what I was using it, it for. But yeah, but, uh, th- uh, but like I don't think like people people hear about how Citizen Kane is supposed to be one of the great movies of all yeah. time. Um, but and Casablanca is too. But Casablanca feels. I think you could watch Casablanca and be like, "Oh, that was really good. That was kind of what I expected." And then yeah. it's a big studio production. You know, it, it feels like it's like it's like it's, like, it's, like, it's like, story beats. I, I feel like without context, maybe people don't appreciate how um, offbeat Citizen Kane was and is. Right. Yeah. That's that's the thing is when I say I contextualized it. I talked for quite a while. I mean, the, the what we were talking about this week is um, cinematography and visual effects. And Citizen Kane is chock full of visual effects, but yeah. not in the way that you would expect, or at least not the way we've come to expect now. And so, but I talked for quite a while about like, all right, I believe I started with, it's time to get serious now <laughs> and talk about what film can be. I've shown a lot of genre. Uh, I showed Alien last week. Um, lots of stuff going on. That's fun. Because last week we were talking about visual design and just like the... Did they like Alien? Yes, most of them did. Okay. Um, and then... Uh, and so with, with Kane, one thing I said is this is a film that really brought some new techniques to, to filmmaking, but that is not enough to make it great. Or at least not the great that we're talking about. It needs to hold up. It needs to still be dramatically interesting. Or when I say dramatic, I don't necessarily mean narrative. Like from a character standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, from a visual, audio, music, like everything needs to be compelling in its own way. And so if you are open to that, one thing I had said is that I can't make you like these movies. Mm -hmm. But what I can hopefully do is help you to be open to these movies. And I would say, let's maybe try and banish the word boring from our vocabulary, because even if you don't like something, you can zero in on what you don't like about it. And your anger, (laughs) (laughs) anger's not boring, you know? And so, uh, so I'm really interested to see what they think or what they thought. There's a handful that, uh, I haven't. I I think they probably liked it. I'm really not sure. Um, but yeah, you use the word offbeat, and I think I think you're you're dead on. It's it, it is a very offbeat film mm-hmm. for the time and now. Yeah. And I will say, and I did mention this a little bit afterwards. The great, the really great films find a way to be relevant. Mm-hmm. When we look at the way, if you'll, the, look, I'm not in the mood to get political, but if you look at the way Kane treats women, now admittedly, he treats everybody pretty poorly. Right. Um, but the entitled way that he approaches his, his, certainly his second wife, you know, when she's mm-hmm. about to leave him and he's 
pleading in a, in a, in a genuine way. Like, please don't go like, we'll do this your way. You'll get what you want. And then pause. And he says, you can't do this to me. Mm -hmm. And she says, Oh, it's you. This is being done too. And it's like that. And it's a very liberating moment for her because then she leaves and he destroys the room. It just like total impotent rage. And given uh, the cultural conversation of the last um, couple years, this idea of like, a man who is powerful and even if he is earnest and genuinely loves this woman, the, the entitlement that he feels to her love mm-hmm. and affection because of what he has done for her is something that, um, well, that, yeah, is, that would stand out. Yeah. yeah. It really jumped out at me this time. <laughs> but anyway. Okay. Yeah. So citizen Kane, um, uh, thumbs up. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, I, uh, I'll say, um, for, a for a thing for the LA online film critic society, it was, um, uh, not rewatching, but re-reading about writing a little thing about the Guy Madden film, Dracula pages from a virgin's diary, which I've never seen. Actually, I've and seen a I, fair amount of Guy Madden, but not that one. Uh, it's really, really great. Um, but I had the same thought about something becoming like relevant relevant again, because one thing that Guy Madden did in that, that is usually left out of adaptations is how much of Bram Stoker's Dracula story is kind of about um, xenophobia and fear of immigrants. Sure. You know? And, like, uh, Guy Madden really steered into that, um, intentionally casting an Asian man to play Dracula when everyone, all the other uh, characters are white. Um To to highlight, I guess, uh, his otherness and the the way that they, I guess, feel about him, what he represents to them. And the idea that there was this... uh, that Guy Madden was making a Dracula movie that was about immigration and xenophobia. Uh, and now I'm thinking about it in 2018 when those, I laugh, but you know, those, it's very sad that it's so relevant. Um, but yeah, I, I have that thought, uh, as listeners and, uh, at least some commenters, uh, have noticed, um, I tend to equate, uh, movies that I'm watching, whether the new movies or old movies to, to uh, current events more and more. But I think that part, partly, partially that's because I have not stopped thinking about current events in my waking hours at all in two years. And I wanted to comment on that, by the way. On what? On those comments. Uh, so, so I don't want to uh, no, name anybody. No, we're not going to name anybody. Okay. And I get it. I totally get it. Like, it can be frustrating when you tune in for something and you get something else. Um... I know, and it's also so sad that we're the only movie podcast out there, and these people have to listen hey, to. Hey, no, no, that's not. I'm not going to get. <laughs> I'm not going to get sarcastic. What I will say is that, you know, I have an entire other podcast where I talk about film in context of my faith, because I needed that outlet. Because I can't stop myself from thinking about movies in that way, because it's an integral part of who I am, and. Like now someone would say like, well, maybe David should do that with his politics. So it doesn't come into this show. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that like, we all have these perspectives. I have a political perspective, but I am on the advice of counsel. Uh, (laughs) uh, I am removing myself. You can't remove yourself completely. I keep stumbling into all kinds of stuff, but 
I remove myself from this because it stresses me out, but you can't remove yourself from everything. And if it's some, if there's stuff in life that you're passionate about, you're not, you're not shoehorning it in. It's almost like this goes back to a conversation we had years ago with friend of the show, Jason Eakin, the idea of overthinking a movie. It's this idea that like, no, we're just thinking about it. And we happen to be thinking about it in a deep way. You're not artificially trying to jam politics into these films any more than you're trying to jam the jam these films into your political view that they are both you just as my my faith and my love of film they are both me i cannot separate the two and so i again i totally get somebody being frustrated that out of nowhere sometimes is a political conversation um and maybe there'll be a time when that dies down when things are maybe not quite so on a daily basis, um, volatile, um, maybe, yeah. but that's the thing is it's, it's where you are right now we'll, we'll in your there. life. I hope we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. I, I we'll don't know. There. It's, uh, there or we'll all die first. You know what? Whatever gets the job done. <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> um, okay. All right, what's next? Lastly is Eli Roth's what? <laughs> the house with a clock in its walls. I I want to address your first thing there because because here's the thing I didn't know oh you until didn't. I saw it and oh, then they wait. had one of their they had one of those announcements where like the director and the cast thank you for seeing a movie in the theater uh, and so that's weird. so I saw the whole cast and there's Eli Roth and he goes hi I'm Eli Roth director I was like what like I had no idea but in retrospect of course it makes yeah. sense but just like. I hadn't heard, I hadn't read any reviews and this was the first I had heard of it, like when it was literally in front of me. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's inappropriate. It just surprised me. Um, I have a problem with, uh, okay. I know Eli Roth can be an obnoxious person, but I feel like people tend to talk about him in the same, with the same assumption that he's like a douchey hack the way that they talk about, I'm not saying I necessarily fully agree, but the way they talk about like Zack Snyder or Michael Bay or, or Todd Ratner. Phillips or who was you? Brett Ratner. Brett Ratner. Yeah. I feel like Eli Roth, uh, and I tend, I also kind of like Todd Phillips sometimes. Um, but, uh, I feel like, yeah, Eli Roth is uh, probably a douchebag. I would not want to spend an evening, uh, in his company. I don't think, um, but I think he's a, a better filmmaker than people give him credit, or at least a more interesting filmmaker than people give I would him credit agree with for. That. More, more distinctive he's, than he's given credit for. Yeah, whether I like it or not, like he's going to do what is interesting to him, and I think what's interesting to right. him is a bit more unique than what is interesting to some of these other filmmakers you're talking about. Yeah, even though I have no intention of ever seeing The Green Inferno, um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Think I could sit through it. I'm glad he made it. But and you he, know what? He, he directed the one. Yeah, right? yeah. Because I know he produces a ton of shit too, which is great. Good for him. But knowing what I know of the Green Inferno, which is more than I care to, um, in its own way, I I kind of respect him for making it yeah, because that's what I'm it is a throwback to a very specific kind of movie. One that I would say, thankfully, died off. Um, but you know. It, he is doing in doing that film. He's, he's doing what a lot of people praise Tarantino for doing, uh, with, uh, grindhouse or the kill bill films. Just like these are the films that influenced him and really stayed with him. And so he's going to try and do his own version of it. And even if we find it morally repugnant, uh, he's going to do what he's going to do. And there's I kind of admire that. 
Um, but I just looked at his IMDb because I was going to look at stuff he produced, but I noticed stuff he directed, and I realized that I have to take back everything I just said. Okay. Because uh, this is this is actually his second movie of 2018. Okay. He made another movie, which is a, a legitimate contender for worst movie of the film, worst film of the year so far, okay. which is the Death Wish remake. I, oh. for, I forgot already that that yeah. was him. I forgot that it existed. <laughs> no, I well, I saw it. Yeah. Uh, that's the that's the problem is I saw it. Um, he, yeah, uh, but he has made interesting choices. Besides, I think I don't know. I I'm comfortable blaming putting most of the blame on Bruce Willis for how much the Death Wish sure. remake sucked. Because if a third of the stories about the way that he behaves on set now, sure, uh, are true, um, then yeah, he's probably is a lot to blame. It's uh, yeah, it's exhausting. Why why would you? Uh, I don't know. We all have our blind spots, but I don't understand people that are just assholes because they are able to be. Yeah, I know. I know. And like in my brief experience of being like a PA and being around actors. Yeah. Um, the, the Bruce Willis type of like super famous asshole is actually surprisingly rare. Yeah. Usually the asshole on the set is the, actor who's been at it a while and is like just sort of getting his first right i say his they could be hers but the the one i'm thinking of is definitely him okay. um uh like getting their first like sort of you know being in the first situation where they have a nice trailer and they're like right relatively high ranked on the call sheet and suddenly they have uh some some pull and some clout on set they're usually the ones throwing their weight around and being douchebags whereas the people like um, I mean, I'll give a specific example because I talked about uh, um, being a PA on Beowulf before, but like Anthony Hopkins and Ray Winstone and John Malkovich are like, they're all sweethearts. Like, yeah. cause they're not, I, I don't think they have that much. Uh, they, uh, they're in a situation, they're in their element and like, I don't think they have a lot of, uh, insecurity in the moment i think they've kind of like gotten to a place where i think that's it i think yeah. it's insecurity because when you the the person in broad terms that you're talking about is in a state of career transition mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if i'd say bruce willis is in a state of career transition so much as he's not what he used to be he's a star people know but he's not a he's not the draw that he used to be he was like a superstar like right up there with the big you know the big ones of the 90s and yeah. now he's just kind of oh it's just bruce willis but is that like I, I i want it seems like it's kind of a chicken and egg situation like did he become an asshole because he stopped being an a-lister or did he be, like I, he doesn't have to make all these shitty movies did he no he doesn't he and could, uh, he could 2012 just make, was a good year for him he made looper and i thought he was great in it yeah, and the movie's just okay. Um, the movie's just okay, but I thought he, <laughs> yeah. I thought he was engaged at least. And then Moonrise Kingdom, which I I, I also don't love, but he's the yeah. most engaged he'd been in years in that. So yeah. I do think that he. Hey, maybe Glass will be, maybe will, will be good for him. Maybe um, it's very possible because he's done great work with M Night Shyamalan before. Yeah. Um, so maybe that'll be. Uh, something that makes him feel more comfortable, but I don't know why he's still making. Yeah, he uh, like he seems to like sign on to these things. Like once upon a time in Venice, I didn't see, but yeah, um, did I. I mean most people didn't. But um, that, that's the thing. I'm talking. You hear the stories about how uh, 
how rarely he's actually present and how often like, uh, I mean literally present, like how yeah. often other actors are acting against his stand in or whatever. But then if you watch death wish, he's almost, even when he's present, he's not really present. Oh no. There's you, yeah, you didn't see it, but I there's didn't. like a scene between cause Vincent D'Onofrio plays his brother-in-law mm-hmm. and there's a scene between him and Vincent D'Onofrio in Bruce Willis' character's basements, when Vincent D'Onofrio like realizes, you know, he shows up, he sees all the guns, he like realizes that this guy, this vigilante is on the news is Bruce Willis, and Vincent D'Onofrio is just going for it. It's of course. awesome, of course, and he's just bouncing off this nothingness yeah. that Bruce Willis is is giving. Yeah, I've 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 said this before that if you cast vincent d'onofrio in your movie vincent d'onofrio shows up uh, oh yeah and it's it's great remember the magnificent seven remake yeah how great he was in that it's great yeah that's an underrated and, movie what was that it's an underrated movie it's not I, great but it was a, it was a fun time and it you got I, some character actors doing character actor things it's in the in the supporting roles i think is where it really comes to life yeah, ethan hawk and uh, his relationship with the um chinese guy is it is he Chinese? I can't. I, I can't believe so. That. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then just the fact that there's a character named Red Harvest, I love. <laughs> um, but then, but yeah, and then also Peter Sarsgaard. Um, yeah, it's it is it's not a terrible movie. It really is. I hate to say it. It really is just Denzel Washington is fine. Chris Pratt is fine. But I think, given the like. It's in the supporting cast that this feels like an old school western. Yeah. But look, the point is the house with the clock in its walls. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> Forgot we hadn't talked about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a fine movie. It really is not that different than so many of these other like magical novel adaptations for kids. Uh, I think I, I don't remember who I read, but there was somebody who's saying that this movie feels like the spider wick chronicles, which feels like bridge to Terabithia. I think that's a, I think that one's a cut above emotionally, but, um, I forgot about all, the spider wick chronicle. I didn't see that. It's, it's not bad there. Yeah. None of them are, are just, none of them are bad. Yeah. They're always, they're usually pretty visually interesting. And this one is no different in that respect. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's just nothing that compelling about them. And, this film, I think from an art direction standpoint, it's a dream. I've, I'm happy I saw it in the theater, um, because it really, the house itself looks really beautiful and, uh, and just so much of the, so much of the filmmaking is fun. The, the music is, is delightfully dark and all of that. Uh, the performers, the, the young boy whose name I don't know, but he, does a really solid job of being a, a very specific Charlie t- Tahan man this guy <laughs> uh, but uh, but this he does a good job of, of making this kid who is genuinely weird um, and if you saw him in school you'd be like yeah that kid's got to stop wearing those goggles that's weird <laughs> um, Jack Black and Kate Blanchett uh, are Okay, Kate Blanchett is engaged and she's having fun. Jack Black. I don't think he got a handle on this character. I don't think he knew what this character was meant to be. I don't and be as a result, I don't know if I know what the character is meant to be. There are times when he seems dumb and incompetent. There are other times when he seems wise and otherworldly mm-hmm. and and well, I guess hyper competent, honestly, uh, like he's just, 
whatever the scene kind of needs him to be is what he is. And I hate to say it, but like, I think you need an actor who is better able to embody that kind of thing, embody those contradictions and craft a, a full fledged character out of it. And Jack Black can be a really solid actor in the right role. And I enjoyed him earlier in Juma- uh, last year in Jumanji. I forget. Did you see, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Yeah. No. Okay. He's, I think he's in it a little bit too much to qualify for the uh, best performance under 15 minutes. Okay. Be just probably just barely too much, but it is up there with Bernie in terms of performances of his career. And, and that is saying something like he, it's just, you look at stuff like, you know, school of rock, uh, and just not unlike Vincent D'Onofrio, I, he try he really puts in the effort in all of these and he's putting in the effort here, but I just don't think it, maybe it's the way the character is written. And he's just not able to transcend it. Um, but yeah, and I think there are a couple other issues. There are moments when, when the, the film gets very juvenile, in a way they're like okay well this is a film for there's a family film and so we got to have these little laugh moments for the kids uh but it really doesn't fit with the general tone um and so yeah it's it i i'm glad i saw it but it's it's not remarkably uh interesting it's just visually cool looking um but i did see it because i'm teaching a bunch of middle schoolers now along with uh, college students by the way the guy is uh, Korean from Magnificent Seven. Okay. So I'm a racist. I knew it. You don't have to tell me. I know. Um, I've, I've known you for almost 20 years now. And, uh, it's true. I can know oh, the stories I can tell about your <laughs> virulent racism. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so yeah, it's as far as uh, TV, moving into TV, uh, a new season of Survivor is upon us, David. Oh. And uh, I will... I'll say that this season, it's another one of their theme seasons and (sighs) watching Jeff Probst just contort himself to constantly talk about the theme, uh, is, uh, embarrassing Mm -hmm. and painful. And this one is David versus Goliath. And it's basically, it's one that I, I do wonder based on the description, if they're trying to take, their cues from certain aspects in culture, the idea that some people have it easier than others just okay. naturally in life. Um, right. whether, okay. whether well. it be from a wealth standpoint or from some people just for whatever, like they're very tall and muscular and they didn't really do much to get it. Um, stuff yeah. like that. It also sounds like they're picking sides because Oh, like, no question Goliath about it. Goliath is a bad guy. Yeah. Oh, he's the villain. Uh, but it's hilarious to me that Mike White is a Goliath. Oh, I guess you, you yeah, saw that. Okay. He's rich. Yeah. I he's, guess that's it. But he's like, yeah. And he's, he's such a like awkward weirdo. Yeah. And so he's, and he himself is like, I'm looking around me and I'm thinking, I don't think I'm on the right tribe here. <laughs> yeah. It's just that he is rich, but it's not as though he inherited that wealth. Like he it's very difficult to be a writer and director and actor and producer in Hollywood. And he manages to do, he's managed to do all of those. He wrote the aforementioned school of rock. Um, and it's just, uh, it's, uh, so I guess I see it. I think they just, they needed to put him somewhere and why not here? Um, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting. I will say that, uh, 
there are just certain elements. I, there's a lot more rain this season. And where is it? Where are they? I, they're in the same place they always are, uh, which is oh, like I they uh, moved every time up until a few years ago. And then they basically are like, all right, we're staying here. And then every once in a while they'll go huh. like, but it's the exception. I didn't know that. Um, I thought that was part of the thing. It was for a long time, but what, here's the thing that they would do. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. They, they would go to, okay. For example, let's say you and I are on survivor Los Angeles. Okay. Okay. And then, our season is done and then they shoot another season in the exact same place survivor north hills which is where i live <laughs> and then they then they bring, they take them out and then it's time for survivor socal you know like that's what they do is one place can be called a number of different I things see. so uh that's so that's the thing they do but anyway uh but what's interesting is, is another is, way that amazing race is better than survivor they actually go to the places, I think. That's true. What if this what if they've been running on Epcot this entire time? <laughs> That'd be kind of awesome. Um so uh so yeah, but the rain it forces people to uh just huddle in the shelter and they can't really do any scheming. They can only do a lot of bonding. And oh. that's always really interesting because the David tribe, um uh, are like the closest I've ever seen them on this at this point. We're one episode in. And then one of them had to be medically evacuated due to a freak accident on a boat. Like, because the boat will take them to and from the like uh-huh. the challenge site and there are terrible storms and the boat hit this wave and this guy who's a big who was like a big guy like went like flying in the air and like hit his back. Oof on uh like the the roof of the of the boat and it like screwed him up and he was in terrible pain and so he had to be evacuated and so that brings the tribe even closer do you remember in the last uh i think it was the last amazing race when that girl got uh her part of her tooth knocked out like knocked out by Mm -hmm. the uh there it was a weird little it was like you're it's a personal sailboat do you remember you're like oh yes yes that's so right it's like you're sitting in one thing and you're like working the sail yes. on this like tiny little personal sailboat and she turned around and let go of the thing right in the face and the the pole on the sail whacked her right in the face yeah um yeah that's not as it's not it's crazy. no watermelon the watermelon <laughs> the, the craziest uh, amazing race injury and she ended up being fine i mean she couldn't yeah. feel her face for like an hour understandable um, uh, yeah but if you've never seen the i mean yeah google amazing race watermelon i'm sure you've seen it yeah did and you it was, see the recent i feel bad laughing about this okay. a couple weeks ago at a college football game no the university of colorado the mascot god so stupid <laughs> he's okay and it's so stupid that i'm laughing at it and that i've watched it so many times but he was going to use the t-shirt gun to oh, shoot boy. it into the oh, no. into the crowd and didn't realize he had it pointed the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> and fired a t-shirt directly into his crotch oh boy now, who, who are the eli roth douchebags now we're laughing at someone getting hit in the crotch i know he's okay but it's just like because uh, the guy like the video is from all the way up in the stands and you can hear it <laughs> 
It's just hitting the like padding of the oh, mascot yeah. suit, and also the entire time he like he, they came out and like got him onto the cart and cart him away. Didn't take the head off, so good for him yeah. for commitment. <laughs> but the uh, show must go on. But boy, uh, well, I have not seen this, and of course, it's the first thing that's going <laughs> to be looked at when we stop recording. Yeah, what I will say is that now. Uh, it is not posted yet. Uh, unfortunately it'll post tomorrow, but my survivor podcast Mm -hmm. worth playing for that. I host with my (laughs) wife, Jen, uh, we're starting it back up for this season. Um, we have watched the episode. We have obviously, but we have not yet recorded about, we'll record it tomorrow and we'll post it tomorrow. So if you want a much more in depth, uh, uh, conversation about survivor check that out it'll be available tomorrow and so that's uh, that's basically it